Welcome back to the History of South Africa podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode 52. We're heading into a new and most momentous century, the 1800s. When we left off last episode, Nguika was still trying to decide what to do about the missionaries camping near his great place, somewhere east of King Williamstown and south of Hogsback today. The British had managed to stabilize the Eastern Cape at the end of 1799, but this was a false peace, as you're going to hear. Kunrad the base, the giant Trekboer, was still living with Nguika and muttering sweet horribles into his ear about the English. The Trekboers of Graf Reinet were deep in their cups of resentment at the same time. Amatkoza of the Zurfeld, Tungwa of the Amatkonukwebi, for example, were smiling smugly, having secured their rights to the grasses of the Eastern Cape, west of the Fish River, from the British, much to the chagrin of the local Trekboers. Because Governor Dundas had left a fairly large force in place at their Algoa Bay garrison, the locals were biding their time. Needless to say, as soon as that force was decamped, all hell was going to break loose. Many, many mixed metaphors later, Governor Dundas was up a creek without a paddle. You see, the defence of Cape Town, or what was known as the Indian Gibraltar, remained his priority. He had to protect it no matter what. With so many French fleets flitting around the Atlantic, the British thought it was simply a matter of time before they'd try and seize the strategic corner of Africa. So on the 24th of February, 1800, Dundas withdrew his troops from the Zurfeld to bolster the understrength garrison in Cape Town. Reinforcements from the Cape had already been sent to India and other parts of the East, so he really didn't have a choice. But his decision left Fort Frederick, that earthen wooden blockhouse in Algoa Bay, extremely vulnerable and imminently Dundas's political settlement cobbled together with the Amatosa, the Khoi and the Trek Boers, was about to unravel. It started with the local official Mainir, who the Trek Boers hated, being called to enforce humanitarian law regarding the Khoi Khoi farm labourers without any force to back him up. The burghers were already deeply upset by the British attitude to the indigenous people, exacerbated by the real danger posed by gangs of Khoi Khoi who were raiding farms, despite Dundas's pronouncement that there was peace in our time, so to speak. The unofficial Khoisan gangs led by Sturman, Trumpeter and Busak were still on the loose. The Trekboers regarded it as unsafe to head back to most of their farms and further resented the restriction on the use of firearms. They wanted carte blanche to attack any village across the Zurfeld to recover rustled cattle, but the governor knew they'd often used these raids to steal the cattle themselves. The situation took a turn for the worse, though, when our friend, the London Missionary Society's Dr. Johannes von der Kemp, decided it was time to move away from Nguinka at his great place and head for Graf Reinet. We'll get to that later. But first, a small backtrack to the great place on October 1799, where we left off last episode. Nguinka had become more and more inaccessible to the missionaries as the weeks passed. The young chief was paranoid about plotters and conspiracies inside the Amakosa kingdom, and not only distrusted fathers van Kemp and Edmunds, but his mother's lover, Kunrat the Base. What was bubbling away beneath the surface constantly amongst the Amakosa and Khoi and Trekpur and British was a feeling of unease. Nguika's mother, yes, was deeply involved, although both oral history and written has some dubious stories about her. We do know that she was offended by her husband, Kunrat the Base, and his support for the missionaries. Her own suspicions were made clear by her Bengalese interrogator we heard about last episode. Yesi was also the principal rainmaker of the great place, and these mysterious magic men in black called missionaries could be rivals in the rainmaking business. 
She wasn't sure about that, but as you're going to hear, a thunderstorm at Christmas probably made up her mind. The shades would not take too kindly to two different bits of magic emanating from the great place. The base was also not trustworthy, something else she'd figured out. They had spent a lot of time together by now and seemed to have a special relationship, but she knew that he was in a relationship with her for more than one reason, and he had many other lovers, not that she was without her own list either, according to oral historians. It wasn't just sex and lust, there was the base's other life. He had a house in Tembuland, as it was known, well east of the Kaiskama River, where he had another Amatkosa wife and children living there. He had Koi wives too, and dozens of children. Furthermore, the Rarabi queen Yesi was losing interest in the giant Trekpur. Her words to Nika would surely not come at a worse time too. The chief was increasingly moody, unpredictable, impulsive and erratic. So his counsellors then dreamed up a perfect solution. Why not seek his distraction by a new wife? Nika's lethal impulses were growing more difficult to gauge and the missionaries were becoming more afraid by the day. They truly believed they would not make it out of the great place alive. The base too realized he was in immediate danger. But the cunning man had a few tricks left after Nika's chief counselor arrived with the news that the king would no longer admit the base to his presence. Give Kunrad credit, he didn't panic. He made a final appeal on behalf of the missionaries through Nika's other uncle Siku, who was a brother of Mtlambi and one of the most powerful men in the great place. More about Siku at the end of this podcast. When the appeal failed, the base began to grow very alarmed indeed. Reports were circulating once more that Nika believed the missionaries were English spies and he was considering when and exactly how to put them to death. Mtlambi... Nika's uncle, of course, as you remember, who he deposed, was at the great place and was summoned for his view, and the older man made a public show of completely ignoring the missionaries, like they were already dead. This was even more bad news for them. By now, missionary Johannes van der Kemp was also exhausted from the strain and listening to all these bitter arguments. His sidekick Edmonds, as you know, was well on the road of a breakdown constantly badgering Van der Kemp about their plight, saying he was to blame for their predicament, while their Koi servants were even more afraid and demanding they all depart immediately. Van der Kemp reminded everyone that they were adults and had come along freely. I knew that when I entered this country, I entered it having the sentence of death in myself, he told them. That wasn't exactly what the Koi servants nor Edmonds were planning as part of their near future, and Van der Kemp's fatalistic sentiments terrified them still more. It was almost 1800, summertime, the temperatures rising to the mid-30 degrees centigrade. The heat was having other effects. Suddenly, one day, rising notes of gaiety could be heard from the great place. The entire royal kraal was singing, dancing and feasting. Nika hadn't decided, indeed, it was time to take a third wife. Everyone, Amatkoza, Koi, Missionary and Trekpur, felt as though a death sentence had been lifted, at least for a moment. The bearers of these good tidings were the two women whom the missionaries said they were trying to keep out of their beds. Mika's sister, Hobe, and her friend, whose name, unfortunately, we do not have. Still persistent, they dragged the missionaries out of their tents and into the great place to join in the festivities. Making merry with the king and the rest of the company, said Edmonds. Kunrad the base, however, was putting on his blue steel face. He decided it was a moment of confrontation, so he sent one of Nika's captains to the chief with a message that the base would no longer respect the king, 
whose expression and behaviour towards the giant had changed, and since the king did not respect the base nor the missionaries, Kunrad was leaving. Now, most kings you and I read about would probably have ordered Debase's head brought before him, neatly separated from his body and placed tenderly in the basket, but not Nika. The bravado of Debase's comments set the missionaries straight onto their knees, moaning forgiveness of God, probably for sending them this oaf who had now insulted the Amatoza king. Many psalms were recited extremely earnestly. And lo and behold, did Debase bring his oxen to his tent, and yea, ordered his horse to be saddled, and then verily did get himself in order for his journey hence, wherever hence was. As Debase had calculated, Inuika suddenly appeared, accompanied by ten of his counsellors, and asked, What with the horse and saddle? Debase said, You have declared that you would consider me as your father, but your conduct to me in these last days denies these feelings. Remember by now Debase was middle-aged, his beard a thing to behold, and of course he was almost seven feet tall and had been romping about with Nguika's mother. The king, for all his kingliness, was still a young man, and in Amatosa society there is respect for the elderly, especially your mother's significant other. Debase wasn't finished. You've been cool and haughty to the missionaries, he said. The Honourable Father done wrong trick. Nguika apologized, saying he was sorry for his behavior, and the missionaries were indeed now under his protection, and they could now head off and find a place on the far side of the Kaiskama River, on the stunningly beautiful slopes of the Amatola Mountains. It was only at this moment that Van der Kemp and Edmonds knew they were finally on their way to the interior of Africa. It was the start of an endeavor that was muddled, ambiguous, and yet persistent. They were a sorry couple, earnest, and yet a walking contradiction. They were looked on with indifference by the Amatkosa, whom they sought to convert, and with indefatigable hatred and loathing by the other Christians, the Trekboers on the sidelines. And yet, when you read their diaries about this first venture from the great place up into the Amatolas, it's almost like they're heading to the Garden of Eden. And of course, parts of the Eastern Cape were just like the Garden of Eden back in 1800. They were inside what we know as a true paradise, the eastern districts of South Africa, rolling along the flanks of the Amatola Mountains, gaining height slowly as they used the contours, rising across the green, slanting, Swiss-like pastures, fringed by dense forests. The trees shaded icy streams until they arrived at the spot the base had selected for them. He'd already sorted out his issues with Nguika, and headed there ahead of the missionaries, joined by two British army deserters who were constructing a rough home for them. Van der Kemp, of course, was smitten by the Eastern Cape, as most are who travelled there. Before this house we had a beautiful field of grass in the middle of an amphitheatre of high mountains, he wrote. The ascent to the mountains was covered by a thick wood. Some of the trees were above 100 feet high. Above, towards the top of the mountains, were meadows of a vast extent, and a beautiful verdure, and the top itself was covered with inaccessible woods. The story of the Amatola Mountains is interesting itself. Nguika's grandfather, Rarabi, had seized the Amatolas from the first people living there, a scant forty years before. Then it was ruled by a Khoi chieftainess. The Khoi had arrived there hundreds of years before, and in turn had of course driven away the sand. Now the Amatolas were regarded very much as the Tararabi heartland. This had become their birthright, the place they loved more than anywhere else in the world, and through whose pastures their cattle roamed seasonally. 
It was also to be the theatre of future struggles against the British, a new great land, when they saw it. It was the centre, too, of the future missionary struggle to convert the Amatosa, and much later would see a university form called Fort Hare, where Nelson Mandela would be educated. How these moments of ancient time twisting through our contemporary life shake dreams from our souls and sharpen the understanding that we are of these people. So, Van der Kemp and Edmund sank to their knees in the Amatolas on the 22nd of October, 1799. I kneel down upon this grass, said Johannes van der Kemp, thanking the Lord Jesus that he had provided me a resting place before the face of our enemies and Satan, and praying that from under this roof the seed of the gospel might spread northwards through all Africa. But he had barely time to get back on his feet, in a way, before Satan pitched up with pitchfork and roasting tongs. Dangerous times had swept back across the great place, and Ingrika was now back in his paranoid frame of mind. For good reason as well, because... There were many out to get him, but he first wanted to deal with the Trekboers. Piet Prinslow had whispered one too many lies in his ear, and he ordered the Boer arrested along with two others as spies. The missionaries realized how ironic that was, considering Prinslow had tried to convince Nguyenka of their apparent assassin's mission. The tables had turned. Prinslow had also been operating as a courier for the Amakosa king, and it was clear to Nguyenka that the Trekboer was not very good at his job. Word spread of Prinsloo's arrest, and Van de Kemp immediately told Edmonds that he should leave that wondrous place in the Amatolas. But before he could, a letter arrived by messenger from the great place. It was from Honoratus Mainier, the Grafreinet magistrate. Mainier had arrived at the great place and wanted them to travel there, and had offered them a new mission in Grafreinet too, as inducement. So Van de Kemp and Edmonds travelled back to Ingrika's great place, only three weeks after leaving and straight into a very deadly situation. But not at first. Mainier was alive, but only by the skin of his teeth. The Trekboers wanted him dead, including Gunrad the base, who had already made the return trek to the great place himself, and refused point-blank then to even see Mainier. Nguyenka, in turn, demanded Mainier be killed immediately, but his mother and even his deposed uncle and Tlambe talked him out of it. Talk about complex stuff going on, folks. Nguyenka suspected that all white people hated each other, and the shifting relationships in recent Cape history didn't make it any easier to figure out what was going on. The missionaries were in the most immediate danger because Van de Kemp, seemingly unaware of the king's paranoia, then tone-deaf, asked Nguyenka for permission to head off to Graf Reynet. Of course, the Amatosa king viewed Mainier's sudden arrival and the Graf Reynet suggestion malevolently. So Nguyenka said no and ordered the missionaries back to the Amatolis, where he could keep an eye on things in the interim. Edmonds, meanwhile, was almost beside himself with despair. All this riding around on wagons and meeting royal Amatosa chiefs and forcing Hope and her friend away from his bed was becoming too much. Nguyenka's mood was ugly about the British, and when the missionaries returned to their little Eden in the Amatolis, they were joined by Kunrad the base. The Trekboer himself felt that his time as a friend of Nguyenka was probably ending but pretended to be willing to intercede on their behalf and to try to convince Nguyenka that they should be allowed to head off to Graf Reynet. At least, for Edmund's sake, the man was coming undone in the Zierfeld bush. So it was then that something biblical took place. Nguyenka himself arrived to visit the missionaries to see what was going on at the mission station in the Amatolas on Christmas Day, 1799. 
He told the base that he still regarded the giant as his father and said none were to come to any harm. Whether they were safe, though, and could stay, he would only provide the answer on Boxing Day, the 26th of December. It was dry that afternoon. The rains were late, and for whatever reason, or perhaps it was a test of some kind, Nika turned to Van Kemp before he left for the night and asked the missionary to pray for rain. He said he would. And lo, that night it did rain. In fact, it drenched everyone and thundered as sometimes the Amatola thunders. Nika was back early the next morning and demanded to know of Under Kemp if that was God's doing. It was, said the missionary. So how was it done? Nika asked. And Van der Kemp then embarked on a meteorological and physical science lesson. He marveled when I related to him some of the phenomenon of electricity, said Van der Kemp. Nika then allowed Edmonds to leave for Graf Reynet. No doubt many, many prayers passed the departing missionary's lips. But, but, no trip for Van der Kemp. He was told to stay behind. Nika may have enjoyed the inspired sound to light show of the previous night's storm, but he wasn't born yesterday. What the missionaries didn't know was that Kunrad de Base had pitched up at Nika's camp soon after the amazing thunderstorm during Christmas night and demanded cattle from Nika as price for helping the Amatosa receive rain. There was literally no end to de Base's self-serving actions, and in a moment I'll explain why. By February 1800, the Zurfeld was in flames once more. The rustling bandit Koi Koi were now the least of the problems, because Sturman, Trumpeter and Busak roamed the banks of the Sunday's River, a Koi Koi League, and they had decided to join up with the Amatosa once more. Inflambe, meanwhile, had managed to finally escape Nguika's clutches in February 1800, and been reunited with his previous clan inside the Zurfeld, and was quickly re-establishing himself as a leader of note. Kungwa of the Amatonukwebi was trying to stop him, and also trying to convince Sturman, Trompeta and Busak, the Khoi Khoi League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, to join him. The Khoi were not playing hard to get. The British had handled the Boers softly and then withdrawn most troops, so the Khoi began to move on Trekboer farms once more, and very aggressively. They detested the Boers, and the British weakening of the Khafrenet garrison Worrying about the French attacking their precious Cape Town had given Sturman, Trumpeter and Busak a free hand to seek revenge. Stirred by what was a fatal misreading of the situation, the Khoi formed an alliance with Amatosa of the Zierfeld once more and began preparing their war parties, which reignited the Cape Frontier Wars with greater force than before. Before we get to that outbreak in 1801, there's quite a bit to cover first. Much of the following months would revolve around characters in Southern African history, and none more so than Inglika and Kunrad the Base, and Johannes van der Kemp, not to mention Inglika's mother, Jesse, who was a power in her own right. First, a little more about this de Base character. He was six when his father died. Then his own family used him as they used Koi as a laborer or servant on agreement that he'd received payment when he became of age. Instead, his Boer family withheld payment until he took them to court in the Cape. But something deep inside the base was awakened by the terrible treatment he'd endured by his own people. He then set off for the frontier and an independent life, selling ivory and cattle on the outermost perimeters of Dutch society. After his family experience, he never much liked or trusted fellow Boers, preferring the company of the Khoi, the Khoisan, or the Amatosa. He regarded the Trek Boers as idiots, gullible, easily led, 
prone to credulousness and panic, full of jealousy, bitter quarrels, and tawdry recrimination, as that great historian Noel Mostat writes in his book Frontiers. Kunrat the base drew a line of disdain between himself and the Cape White society. His physical size and courage was unequaled. He was apparently a calm psychological marksman, and by now every colonial government had either wanted his head or weakly pursued him with offers of pardon. None ignored him. No one else on this frothy frontier equaled his outstanding individuality, his notorious character. The frontier boers feared him. They hated him. Not one called him a friend. Damatkosa feared him too and found it difficult to ignore him as well. A member of the Besedenhood family of the Cape, also infamous for their escapades, said at the time that he is an intriguer who has not a single friend. He has been no good since his earliest years. He has always been a disturber of the peace and the persecutor of the Christians as well as of the blacks. And yet the base was most at home with the indigenous inhabitants, the San, the Khoikhoi, the Amatkosa. He had a devoted clan of black and Khoisan wives and many, many children. And yet he was a loner and away from his homes much of the time. But he befriended Nika and Van de Kemp in what certainly was a bizarre combination of folks to get along with in 1800. The Boer was the intermediary between the Cape and the frontier. At the threshold of a new century, these three men were somehow bonded and intertwined, and yet all three alone. Two of them, De Base and Nika, gazed at the vanishing world of the 18th century, while missionary Van de Kemp is very much the harbinger of the future. Nika was the symbol of interaction between his Rarabi people and the expanding colony at precisely the moment when the frontier began to close down. For both Boer and Amatosa, the old slow life was over. The 18th century and its open wilderness fading restrictions would only increase. For men such as Debase, the easy way of interchanging one culture for another, casually moving between black and white, was almost finished. Mistrust amongst the Amatosa had replaced welcome and the 19th century was going to bring new land lodges and new wars. Nika's first few months of the new century were also filled with crisis. And Slumbi had escaped, so had two of his brothers, including Suku, who I mentioned earlier, and who was a powerful man in his own right. Worse, a great mass of his people had joined in Slumbi, heading west into the Zurfeld and straight into the area contested by Trekboer, the British, the Khoi, and in the highlands, even the San. Siku had fled because he sensed that Nguika was going to kill him. Their flight and the proposed assassination of Siku, which Nguika was indeed planning, turned many against their young paranoid chief. Siku actually was forced to seek help from a force of Khoikhoi living nearby. Things got so bad. After that fact emerged, almost all Nguika's people left him and the young king was trapped inside his great place, too fearful to leave. It was also time for the Boers to leave, as Kunrad the base guessed. You see, Nika was slipping into delirious fantasies. Crazy town had come to the great place. This time, Nika did want to kill all whites living with him, and the giant Boer convinced missionary Van de Kemp it was time to go, whether the king granted permission or not. What happened next is for next episode. Thanks to the folks sending me notes. Luyanda for your comments on the Amatkosa and the language of Isikosa. Richard for the donations. Jeremy for the chat we had. Thank you. And some good news, folks. The History of South Africa podcast has been entered into the One World Media Podcast Awards. I'm excited. It's getting some recognition, and thanks for all your support. Please rate the podcast on iTunes, and if you want to chat or have a comment, send me an email through my site, desmondlatham.com, 
or direct message me on Twitter. My handle is at Des Latham. Until next, salani gashli. Thank you.